Hey, this is French Johnson, and you're listening to No Sleep Till Sudbury, the show where we talk about the music that makes your skin vibrate. And in the studio today, making his second appearance on the show, is British guitarist, producer, Grammy and Juno Award winner, it's Mr. Chris Burkett. Chris, welcome back, sir. Thank you very much, Brent, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, you've brought Sherry Talon with you this time. I brought the talents with me. The talent. The talent <laughs> came with you. The Sherry Talon. So, so Sherry Talon is your Free Spirits uh, collaborator. Yeah, we have right. a band uh, which we formed a couple of years ago called the Free Spirits. We've been playing together for probably four or five years now, since almost since I arrived in Canada. And we we had a full band once, and then we just started doing duos. And then we, th- we said, well, let's just... Let's just work on an album. So it's taken us two years to do it because we've been doing it, you know, in our spare time. Mm-hmm. We call it a baby. The baby's arrived, and the baby is called Eleven Eleven. Okay, that's the name of the album, and it's going to be released on November the eleventh this year. Makes sense. So it's uh, the, so it's all done. We're releasing it through CD Baby. Good. And uh, we would like to do a, you know, one or two songs from it. I would love for that to happen. So let's start with one. Let's play one now called The Power of Our Love, I believe. Yeah. So this is about uh, the fact that love can be so strong, it can open a, a hole in the universe, which you can climb up back to the stars. So that's what the song is about, essentially. <laughs> so it's the power of a, a universal love. So it goes a bit like this. I never thought about the question 
Why does love have to be defined? And I was searching for the answer. Love catches me every time. Hey, the power of a love will open up a hole in the universe. The power of a love will open up a hole in the sky. We are climbers. We're climbing to the stars. Take it away, Shay. Nice job, you guys. Well done. That's great. I like it. It's the first time we ever played that song live. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. Because we just finished the album. It's all studio, right? So we haven't actually had a chance to go out on stage and play these songs yet. So this is the very first virgin recording of this song. This is the world premiere. Yes. I love it. That's great. Power of Our Love world premiere. There you go. You got it. Thank you very much. That was great. So now... We're going to be talking about three songs today because you're going to play another one at the end of the show. Yeah. Now, the last time you were here, Chris, you, you told some pretty radical stories. They were pretty entertaining. So I expect that level More of- of the same. <laughs> <laughs> or else you'll never come back to bring Jensen's podcast again. <laughs> All right. So we're going to start with Thomas Dolby and Commercial mm. Breakup. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, uh, I worked on an album with uh, Thomas Dolby called The Golden Age of Wireless. Mm-hmm. Or back way back in the uh, in the eighties, when I was a uh, house engineer at uh, Tapestry Studios in London. Now the thing is, I wasn't really an engineer; I was a musician, and okay. I'd been living in Devon. I'd had a deal with Tony Visconti's Good Earth Records, and the deal collapsed after a couple of albums. My band Omaha Sheriff disintegrated. So I phoned John Congress, the owner of Tapestry Studios, a rich South African dude, and I said. John, can you give me some sessions? And he said, yeah, you can. But uh, I heard you got an electronics degree and uh, I can't get you enough guitar sessions to keep you alive in London, but I, you can come and build my new studio. Hmm. So I built the studio and designed it and wired it all up. And then he said, I haven't got an engineer. So I said, uh, well, I've never done it before. You know, <laughs> so it was kind of scary. So one of the early sessions I did, I did two sessions, which turned out kind of disastrous, but it, they both ended up as really big records. I'll tell you the other story in a minute, which relates to this story. But uh, anyway, Thomas Dolby came in, and we were working on this uh, golden age of wireless, and uh, there's a song called Commercial Breakup. Have you heard it? Mm-hmm. It's a great song. I, I like Thomas. He's a, one of the pioneers in electronic music. You're right, yeah. And, you know, he's the first person to use, like, samplers and stuff, you know. Anyway, we're doing this album, and Tom said, uh, Tom was kind of a nightbird, so, you know, 
we didn't really arrive until 11 at night and we worked through to seven or eight in the morning you know okay. and i was really tired because i was the only engineer there so i was doing the day sessions and the night sessions i was i was sometimes working 48 hours without sleep right? so tom went out for dinner with uh, the other musicians in the band and uh i thought oh, i'll give the tape heads a clean you know it's a 24 track tape and they get a better sound if you keep them nice and clean. You know, you get a get a cotton bud and some isopropyl alcohol and wipe all the oxide off and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, so I spooled the tape off we were, we were recording on. I thought, oh, I'll just take the magnetic tape shield, the, the thing that shields the head, mm-hmm. I'll take that off while the tape's spooling, which you shouldn't really do. Uh-oh. Normally it's all right. Normally you get away with it. I've done it many times, but I just happened to be unlucky in a, a combination of stupidity and tiredness. <laughs> the tape, the, the, the tape shield hit the tape as it's going like, you know, 200 miles an hour past yeah. the head you know and fast fast rewind and it ripped a huge three or four foot v-shaped rip in the right in the middle of the commercial breakup oh, no. and it's all crinkly you know you know when you rip something it's all the bit that's where the point went in and ripped it it's all like yeah like when your your cassette player used to eat your cassettes right and i, so I thought oh my god what am i going to do because tom was not the happiest of characters you know he's very serious Uh-oh. about everything you know I thought he's just going to really chew me up. I'm going to get be thrown off. Well, they, they couldn't throw me off a session because it's my studio, but I'm, I'm going to get hell for this. So, so anyway, I, so I got some uh, splicing tape, you know, because you used to cut when you do those days, you had to do tape edits yeah. to change music. The white to, pencil and yeah, everything. white chinograph pencil, mark it, cut the tape, put it back together. The splicing tape. So I got all this splicing tape and I try to iron out the crinkly bit, you know, yeah. like by pushing on the edge of the machine and pulling it, to, to, you know, to make it straight again. <laughs> and then I put a big massive v-shaped splicing tape repair on the tape yeah and then wound it off the thing and then they came back from dinner you know like a couple of hours later we we played the song nobody noticed (laughs) no are you kidding (laughs) yeah i'm sure tom hears this interview he's probably going to (laughs) <laughs> probably gonna call me up and say you bastard <laughs> you never told me that <laughs> that's yeah. great yeah so yeah so the album came out it was a big success and you know it's uh nobody ever knew about the v-shaped rip in the middle of commercial breakup so, so when you hear that song do you do you think back to those times yeah I, I kind of sweat a bit first <laughs> I, <remember how> I, felt. <laughs> I, mean, I was so thin in those days because i wasn't getting any sleep and b i was just really nervous because i hadn't engineered before sure which kind of leads me to another story of the same era, which I think uh, we talked about. Uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners and Gino. Yeah, it was because I was. Um, that was my first hit record that I was involved in. It's actually uh, it's on the back of Breaking Down the Walls of Heartache. You remember that song? Yeah. Breaking down the walls of heartache and baby, I'm a carpenter of love and affection. You know. That's, mm-hmm. So I think it was going to be that. So Gino was going to be the B side, but I decided that uh, Gino should be the A side anyway. So. Now, Dexys were not really, they were kind of a, a very tough band okay. from Northern England. And uh, they were famous for doing bunking trains tour. So they did a tour of England without paying for train tickets. And they just would jump over the fences. So uh, as you know, Dexys have a horn section. Yeah. So it's my first horn section recording. And uh, yeah, they all came in and we'd already recorded something. I can't remember what it was. Put the tape on for the horns to, and, uh, and started rolling and the guys started playing. And we played it back and it sounded really awful. Mm. And it's, it's, what's wrong? Everything sounds like it's miles away and it's, it sounds bloody awful. And I was like sweating. I thought, what have I done? You know, something <laughs> wrong. I, lo- I looked at the tape and I realized I put it on back to front. Oh. So I was trying to record on the back side of the tape, which you, you should not do. You know? Oh, no. So that, that was kind of a... I was working with uh, Pete Wingfield at the time. He's uh, He was kind of a well-known producer. He had a hit with uh, <laughs> 18 with the bullet. 
So he was quite patient. He, he, he knew that. See, John Congress, the owner of the studio, rented me out, rented the studio out with me in it for like half the price. And people like love working with me because mm. I was a musical engineer. You know, they'd say like, you know, let's, let's cut that, you know, let's cut, drop in on the fourth beat, you know, fourth beat of the third bar. And I would uh, know where to do it. Yeah. Because I was a musician. So I was a musical engineer. So it was really good. Hmm. Now, was Come On Eileen on that same record? No, I think that came out on the next record. Okay. Uh, Dexys were, they did the second album. I wasn't involved in the second album. Come On Eileen was on that. Okay. Pete was working out there, Pete Wingfield. And they did it up in Northern England somewhere. Apparently they, as bands do when they get famous, because Dexys, I mean, the Gina made them famous. They were number one for 11 weeks. Okay. You know, they get power trip, right? Mm. So when they finished mixing the album, they walked into the studio, beat up the engineer, and took all the tapes and held EMI to ransom. So, so no. I was really glad I wasn't on that project. <laughs> Beat up <laughs> the like, engineer. Yeah, like six guys like, you know, jumping at you. So Wow. Uh, Pete told me that story because he was in the he was there. So Wow. Yeah. So I, was, yeah, I would have had no idea that those guys would have done that. Yeah. Just, I mean, I know nothing about them, but based on Come and Eileen, it just they seem like a harmless bunch of guys, right? Yeah. Well, they're, they're kind of a soul band. They're really into like Otis Redding and people like that, you know? Yeah, yeah. And uh, which you think that people into soul music would have some kind of, you know, soul about them. <laughs> <laughs> More like you just put the the AS on front of soul and that's the kind of thing you're dealing with. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I wasn't, there's a lot of people that I've made records with who are really famous, yeah. like uh, Hot Chocolate, you know? Yeah, and Errol Brown was to me. It was really nasty to me, you know. So really, yeah, yeah. I was I was making a record called uh, Heartache Number no. Nine. Yeah, with him over in a studio where the police recorded their regards to the Blanc. Okay, and uh, they were working on a song. This song, Heartache Number no. Nine, because I'm a songwriter. And I've been writing songs since the age of twelve. They were stuck on this verse because mm -hmm. Errol was writing the lyrics in the studio, right? And uh, he didn't write uh, "You Sexy Thing." That was written by. I was going to say, Chapman that's, or something. that's their big hit, right? Yeah, but he's, he, you know, he saw himself as a writer. So, and anyway, so I said, well, it, perfectly innocently, I said, well, why don't you say that, you know, on this line? Because it, it works phonetically, it's perfect. And, you know, I just thought I was helping, you know. Mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to get a cut of the royalties or anything like that. I wasn't <laughs> interested in that. just wanted to help the process. And he turned around to me and he said, look, Chris, if you don't mind being quiet, you're just the engineer. You know? Oh, yeah, so, that's a bit nasty. Well, I used to take a lot of abuse like that. People don't really respect engineers. I don't know why. I mean, they, they kind of save the project half the time. I mean, I did a record with, uh, with Steve Earle, um, The Pogues, and it was just chaos. Even worse than that story, I, was, I used to work with Malcolm McLaren, oh. who was the Sex Pistols manager. Okay. Right? He would keep me in the studio for 48 hours nonstop. You know, if, I, I had to have Tupperwares of food to keep me going really and i was eating like salads and everybody was laughing at me because they're all burger types you know <laughs> but uh but they were all like coked out the heads you know they, they 48 hours is nothing to them yeah you know? yeah i was just i couldn't be on any kind of stimulants except for coffee but you know mm -hmm. coffee didn't really work in that situation i found after you know 14 hours of no sleep coffee doesn't really do anything it makes you feel even more tired so i just used to keep myself like water and vegetables you know lots of garlic <laughs> you said that last time you ate a lot of garlic to keep yeah. yourself alert yeah it's like I, didn't, I didn't know that worked well garlic yeah, there's certain herbs which are really good for your you know your general well-being okay but uh it didn't you know it didn't affect my career i mean like not, I, everybody i was the go-to guy for years in london you know mm. engineer until i started producing and then i the, the turning point for me is just kind of a an extra bit which i wasn't going to add but i just written a a song called um, uh, Aphrodisiac, 
an aphrodisiac turned into a club anthem for a whole year in England. It's huge. And, really? And all these big DJs remixed it and everything. Wow. So I guess a call from Soul to Soul's manager because they heard aphrodisiac. I put it all together. I, I was the first one to use samples from Africa and stuff, right? What year would this have been? I was in the 80s. Okay. It's before like Deep Forest and all that got in. In fact, Deep Forest nicked a lot of my sounds because they worked in my studio with my engineer in London. Mm. And they, they, I heard a lot of my sounds on their records. So I was a bit pissed about that, but I couldn't do much about it because he had access to my sound library. Okay. And it was, in them days, it was all Akai samplers. Yeah. So, so Aphrodisiac was done on my Akai S900, which is like, you know, an 8-bit machine, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I used, uh, I just picked up the funky drum sample from James Brown's yes. drummer. Yes. And I was, I was literally the first person ever to use that sample. So it was really cool. No. And, and then, anyway, Soul to Soul heard the Aphrodisiac and it's just the most unusual dance record you've ever heard. Mm -hmm. So they called, the manager called me up and said, uh, Soul to Soul want you to do their next album. I said, oh, great. Well, send me a, send me a producer contract and I'll, I'll do it. And he goes, oh no, they don't want you to produce it. They just want you to engineer. You know, <laughs> you know thereby saying, you know, I'll, I'll be sitting there putting all my ideas in, my sounds. And not getting any credit whatsoever because mm -hmm. engineers don't get royalties. And I had to stand up for myself because even with Sinead O'Connor's record, Sinead wanted to be the producer. Mm -hmm. I had to I had to fight to get my producer royalty on that record. You know, really? nothing compares to you. I mean, I'm glad I did because I made over $5 million on it. But, of course. But up to then, I'd been making a lot of hits and putting a lot of creative input into records and never getting any uh, never getting any long-term comeback mm -hmm. just a fee so I, I just got to a point a crisis point and i started you know turning stuff down i said i'm not doing it unless you you're going to give me a uh, proper credit and that's partly why i bought the chateau in the south of france because you know i was at a crisis i was working my you know my working my tripe out you know i was working with malcolm, malcolm mclaren one night and i and I had to go take my family to France the next day. Mm -hmm. My wife and my uh, my herb parents didn't couldn't drive in Europe. They're afraid because it's on the other side of the road, right? I had no sleep for literally two days. Got in the car, got back at five in the morning, and they picked up the kids, and we all got in this car. And I was driving to the, the channel to cross the, on the ferry to get over to France. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, I'll have a, oh, God, I can sleep on a boat. Great, I'll have an hour. It's an hour crossing, right? Mm -hmm. So I get on the boat, and there's a storm. Oh. So I'm like throwing up all the way across the channel. <laughs> and, then, and then I get to the other side, of course, no sleep at all. And I was driving and I, and I got to this, uh, I was driving up the, down this road in the, in the northern, northern France and I, suddenly I couldn't feel my arms. And mm. I had to stop the car because my arms fell asleep on the steering wheel. Oh, jeez. I've experienced that a few times in extreme exhaustion. It happened to me in Germany once when I was in tour. But um, I got so overworked everybody wanted to use me so i had a chance of buying this chateau in the south of france i went down there and i'd look at it it was perfect with studio so it was a holiday home for a couple of years and then i one night i said to the kids and the in-laws you know who would like to live in france for hmm. a year we just try it for one year and everybody put their hand up off we went and then wow. i made lots of great records down there a lot of work mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay so uh one more song you've got ann peebles and i can't stand the rain and then you're going to play another tune right yeah okay all right. I could play so, that song too, but I didn't write it, so I'd rather play a song that we that we wrote. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so the Ann Peebles, um, I'll tell you the beginning of this story. I don't know whether I mentioned it before, but I was in uh, in London. I was kind of uh, struggling to survive as a young 20-year-old, and I'd run away from home, so I had no family and all that stuff. I got a job in a night shift, start gas station, working the night shift, and then this guy came in at 2 in the morning one day and said, are you Chris Burkett, the guitarist? We're going to Germany 
tomorrow for an 18 month tour and we don't have a guitarist would you like to come and I said hell yeah so so they came back in the morning I jumped in the truck and went to Germany so <laughs> we turned out to be one of the best soul bands in Germany right and uh, so the agent said well we have all these huge artists coming over from Memphis to entertain the troops on a NATO basis could you be the, the band so yeah great so so I got to play with uh, Rufus Thomas did a, cool. you know, did a massive tour with him Greece Turkey Italy everywhere but uh, one of the people I toured with who I really liked it was uh, Anne Peebles mm -hmm. she had a really soulful voice she had a hit with a song called I Can't Stand the Rain mm -hmm. we were asked to play at the opening night of a huge uh, club called Bieber's yep. in Kensington central London we, we all been rehearsing and stuff we've we'd already been playing all around Germany and France and you know touring anyway so I get on stage and I look down at the audience and there's John Lennon was sitting there oh wow I guess that those days the, the him and the Beatles were always invited to the big events that's my kind of John Lennon story I actually got John Lennon was actually get got to hear me play guitar so wow what year was that it'd be uh late 70s I guess I, I was 20 I was 20, 21 70 1974 wow. now everybody knows how old I am da, da, da. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that was um you know, it was a kind of a big experience. And, you know, playing with Rufus Thomas was a lot of fun. He was, he was, he was a ball of laughs. He was really old. He was, well, for, to us, he was old. We were 20-year-old musicians, and he was in his 60s at the time. You know, so, and he'd be jumping around entertaining everybody. So he had a ton of energy. You know? mm. The music keeps you young. Absolutely, yeah, it does. There's totally. no question. Yeah. Okay. So you guys are going to play a oh, second yeah. song from 1111, and it is called Follow the Light, I believe. Very good. You've been doing homework, Brent. I have. <laughs> Gotta be prepared. Let the 
light to our freedom, follow light to our souls. This flame will never grow cold. I said, this flame will never grow cold. Nice. <laughs> that was great. I like that. It's got like a little. Uh, Actually, that person who first started, uh, you know, recording music, yeah. that is actually one of the very first songs that you yeah. presented. Yeah, that's it. Um, but, um, you know, my background, I, I've had analog recording studios, 8-track, mm. 16-track. Yep. And uh, I basically met Chris uh, through LinkedIn. Oh, wow. I was working on a piano piece. I yep. made a lot of piano instrumentals. And a publisher uh, in uh, Florida wanted to put it, you know, on a film. And I had, it was live. So I, I had these, somebody was taking pictures with shutter sounds. Okay. And I wrote to about four studios. And uh, uh, I was living in eastern Ontario at the time. And Chris said, come on, come on over. Let's see what we can do. Wow. So he, he made the piano piece sound great. And then uh, I told him about my flute and whistle playing. And then he uh, presented Turning Around the Sun. Mm. Have you heard that one? No, I haven't. Beautiful, beautiful original song. Uh, and so in return for the piano, we bartered and I did the little penny whistle part. Oh. And then after that, Chris invited me uh, up to the Cameron house. He was doing a bit of a residency there with Melanie Peterson. Okay. And I started playing flute. And then, uh, you know, we just started playing. And as he said, with uh, some different artists. And uh, this album is really exciting because every song has a story. Mm -hmm. It's called it a baby. It's because they all came from this most incredible place. Um, and uh, so we're really excited. Uh, there's a song called The Hidden Life of Trees. Okay. Um, Chris got that book for his birthday and passed it to me. And have you heard of that one? Yeah, I have. Yeah. So, Peter Wallerman, mm -hmm. yeah. German author. So we told him about that one um, and recorded it. And it's got a, a very soft, almost like a mama's and papa's feel. You know? Oh, I like Somewhere that. Somewhere in the States, it said, oh, we want to put this on middle of the road radio. It's great. Yeah. Well, so, well, we sent the track to Peter. Yeah. And, and, he, uh, and he wrote back to us on Twitter or something. Said, yeah. I'm so honored that somebody wrote. <laughs> song about my book and I love it <laughs> yeah it. exactly it's pretty cool and, and then um, before we record Chris always uh, presents this incredible like music like we listen to Yes mm -hmm. and we listen to Gentle Giant and then one night we were listening to Sly and the Family Stone ah. Everyday People yeah. I was like, oh, let's do this one. And then we got the kids' choir and Anne Bren singing on it. You know, so so many of the songs have great stories. So we're mm -hmm. very excited about uh, the release and, uh, you know, touring. We're going to have a release party, uh, hopefully before, uh, before 2020. Just uh, see, where, see where it takes us. We're very cool. Yeah. All right, you guys. Well, thanks for coming in. I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having us, Brent. It's yeah, great. it's yeah. been great. Well done. Here's to many more. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So just to, just to reiterate, uh, we got freespirits.ca. Mm -hmm. So if you want to check us out, the freespirits.ca. Our album, which is called Eleven Eleven, is released on November the eleventh. All the folks out there you should Google Eleven Eleven, see what it means because it's got some uh, pretty profound connections to that number. So so check it out. All right. Thanks, guys. This has been No Sleep Till Subbury with Brent Jensen and my very special guest, Mr. Chris Burkett and Ms. Sherry Talon. Till next time, take good care. Thank you. Bye. Brent Jensen is the best-selling author of No Sleep Till Subbury, Leftover People, and All My Favorite People Are Broken. All titles available in stores and on Amazon worldwide. <laughs>